0: Uh, some time ago, I got a handwritten note in the mail. Uh, I was very excited to see my name uh, sort of handwritten on the on the front of the envelope, and so I took it inside and I opened it up, and it was just a, a short, a very short handwritten letter from an older pastor. Um, I was going through a particularly dif- difficult stage in my Christian life at the time, and uh, this letter was such a a comfort and an encouragement to me at the time, during a hard time. Now, friends, uh, last week we began a new series looking at the book of Revelation, and uh, today we're going to continue looking at uh, the beginning of this book. And I want to suggest right from the outset that in a similar way to the letter that I received, The book of Revelation is a letter that is written to comfort churches that are going through a tough time. And yet it's not a letter written by just any old pastor, but the chief pastor himself, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You can see it there in verse 10. Uh, If you have your Bibles there, uh, please open up to Revelation 1, verse 10. Uh, And this is where the Apostle John hears the thunderous voice of Jesus, who is going to give him a vision um, that he is to write down and send as a letter to various churches in the Asia Minor region. Verse 10, uh, I, that is John, was in the spirit on the Lord's day, Uh, that is Sunday, I think. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And so uh, if you just turn um, forward with me to chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, you will see there that uh, there are seven different letters addressed to these seven different churches around modern-day Turkey which we uh, saw last week. There's one to the church in Ephesus, you'll see in the heading there, and one to the church in Smyrna, and one to the church in Pergamum, and so on and so forth. But it'll be a mistake, I think, to think that each of these letters from Jesus only has relevance for that particular church that it was sent to. For you will see at the end of each of these letters That they were also to be circulated to all the other churches as well. And so, for example, at the end of the letter to the church in Ephesus, if you have a look at chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, at the end of the letter to the church in Smyrna, we read in chapter 2, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, these are not simply uh, a collection of letters intended for this one church that it's being sent to, but it's actually a collection of letters that is meant to circulate across every church, Uh, certainly uh, those seven churches that are mentioned, but also to every church in the world and across the generations, including Church at Nine. Uh, Further, it's not just chapters 2 to 3 that form the content of Jesus' letter, but in actual fact, the whole book of Revelation uh, is a letter to the churches. And so, uh, if you have a look with me at chapter 1, verse 19, chapter 1, verse 19, uh, Jesus says to John, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. The things John has seen refers to the things that he he has seen about the seven churches that we will read about in chapters two to three. And the things that are to take place uh, sorry, the things that are refers to the present reality of what is going on in heaven. God is on his throne, and the lamb uh, that looks as though he has been slain has the victory. Uh, That reality are the things that are, that John describes, that we will see in chapters 4 to 5. And the things that are to take place after this, refers to everything else that we will read about in the book of Revelation, from chapter 6 uh, all the way to chapter 22. And so the whole book of Revelation is one long letter that is written by Jesus to comfort his churches, even though you know there are smaller letters within the larger letter. Well, uh, if the book of Revelation is a letter from Jesus to the churches, then... Um, Chapter 1, verses 9 to 11 are a little bit like the letterhead. Uh, You know, if you have a look at uh, any letterhead, uh, you'll see uh, at the top um, some details about who is writing the letter and some details about who it's being sent to. Uh, That's what uh, verses 9 to 11 are like. And so uh, as we read this letterhead, we, re- we learn something about the human writer of Revelation as well as uh, the recipients. And the thing to notice here, friends, is that both the writer and the recipients both find themselves in a situation where they are suffering for the gospel. Uh, you can see it there in uh, verse 9. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Notice that John describes himself here as a partner in tribulation. The word partner just means to share in something. And so John is sharing with the churches in tribulation or, or suffering That is in Christ. You see, uh, this is what we can expect, friends, if we are in Christ, if we are united with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It cannot be any other way because to be united with Jesus means to be united in his suffering as well as his glory. He is the one who suffered and died on the cross as well as having risen to glory. Uh, Yes, we can expect the blessings of being part of God's kingdom. Yes, we can expect uh, the the encouragement and the strengthening to endure in the Christian life, but we can also expect suffering for the sake of the gospel. John himself, we are told, in verse 9, is is on an island called Patmos. Uh, Now, Patmos is a small island which is now a part of uh, modern-day Greece but it's not like you know those uh, uh, greek islands that you look at on a postcard and you want to go there on holiday uh, it's a bit more like alcatraz than it is a bit like a resort and we are told here that john is on this island on account of the word of god and the testimony of jesus in other words it's likely that john is in exile on this island he's been sent as a prisoner to this island for preaching the gospel and testifying about the Lord Jesus Christ. But the word partner there implies that it is not only John that is suffering, but the churches that he is writing to as well. Now, there is disagreement among commentators as to the historic setting uh, of these churches that he's writing to at the time. Uh, you know, some people suggest that it is you know, the late 60s, and uh, most of the persecution is coming from uh, Jewish quarters who kind of uh, see Christianity as a bit of a uh, Jewish heresy, if you like. Uh, It's the kind of persecution you read about in the book of Acts where the Jewish uh, people, are, um, you know, slandering and beating and killing and wrongfully accusing Christians and dragging them before the Roman courts. Uh, Others suggest that these churches are suffering in the mid-90s and the main source of persecution is from the Romans. And uh, this was a time during, uh, if you know your history, it's the time during uh, the reign of Emperor Domitian uh, when there was widespread emperor worship. And uh, if you didn't bow the knee to the emperor and worship him, then uh, you would suffer uh, violently for that act. Now, uh, whatever the case may be, it's quite evident that these churches are facing some kind of tribulation or suffering or persecution for their faith. And so if you come across with me to chapter 2, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, Jesus says that the church in Ephesus is enduring patiently and bearing up for his name's sake. Uh, Or if you go to uh, chapter 2, verse 9, verse 9, it seems that the church in Smyrna there are living in poverty. They are poor, but uh, probably not poor, uh, you know, just uh, under normal circumstances, but poor because they've lost their jobs for being Christians. They're facing discrimination uh, for being Christians, as, of- as often happens in-, in places where Christianity is the minority uh, it seems further down that, it's, that that persecution is on the rise and some of them will be thrown into prison. And in chapter 2, verse 13, uh, we are told of a person called Antipas uh, in the church at Pergamum who already has been killed for his faith, martyred for his faith. And it is in this climate of tribulation and suffering and persecution that Jesus writes this letter to comfort them and to encourage them and to say, keep on going. But friends, the point I want to make is that whether it's in the first century uh, or for us today, this is the character of the Christian life. If you are a person who is united to Jesus, then you and I can expect some form of tribulation and suffering and persecution. Not not simply suffering in a general sense, you know, we all go through sickness and um, difficulties in life just like the rest of the world, but this is suffering for standing up for the name of Jesus, for his sake. In China, those opposed to Christianity have been burning the crosses in church buildings and putting up posters of political leaders wanting Christians to bow down to those images. Uh, In some Muslim-majority countries, it's very hard for Christians to be employed uh, in the the good jobs because they face discrimination for being Christian, and so they become the poor class. Uh, I was speaking to someone in our church just this week, and he told me how weak and foolish he felt as uh, uh, his uh, colleagues at work um, asked him questions and um, ridiculed him for the answers that he's been given. He, he, He gave them. You see, tribulation and suffering and persecution for Christian people is just the character of the world that we live in, and we will see this again and again and again through the book of Revelation. Not only in the first century, but also for you and me. What is it then that John sees in this vision that he is to write down and send to the seven churches? What does he see? Well, you can see there that John sees a a vision of the Messiah, Jesus. Uh, Let's pick it up from verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Uh, It's fascinating here that John turns around to see the voice. I mean, how do you see a voice? But you see, what John turns around to see is an embodied voice, the word of God in the flesh. However, I want you to see that before he sees uh, that embodied voice, the first thing he sees are seven golden lampstands. Uh, Now, what do you think of when you see seven golden lampstands? Does anyone have any idea? What What do you think of when you see seven golden lampstands? A lot of blank faces. Uh, I think what we are meant to think of—you've already, you've already seen it, uh, believe it or not—I I think what we're meant to think of is the vision that is given to the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter four, which we read in our Old Testament reading. Uh, do you remember the vision? Zechariah sees a golden lampstand uh, with seven golden uh, lamps on it. On either side of this lampstand with seven lamps, anyone remember what was there in Zechariah? An olive tree. Thank you. Who was that? Ian. An olive tree on either side of the, the, the lampstand. Um, and God tells Zechariah that these olive trees are the anointed ones. And who are the anointed ones in the book of Zechariah? Well, there's two of them. Uh, One is Joshua, the high priest, and another one is Zerubbabel, who is uh, from the kingly line. And so in Zechariah, what's happening is the lampstand is meant to represent the temple, and uh, these two anointed ones uh, are two messiahs, if you like, who are going to build the temple. But not by their own strength, but by the by the strength and power of God. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Now, if you turn back with me to Revelation one, John sees seven golden lampstands, and we are told that these seven golden lampstands are the seven churches of God. In chapter one, verse twenty, the lampstand in in Revelation 1, represents the church of God. And in the midst of these lampstands stands one like a son of man who is wearing a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. Now, who is this person? Well, the son of man, if you remember, uh, is that great figure in Daniel chapter 7 who is given uh, all power and glory and rule. He's uh, God's king who receives the everlasting kingdom. And the long robe and the golden sash are the clothes that the high priest wears. And so in Revelation, what is going on is that you have the church, but rather than having two messiahs, the high priest and the the high king, Jesus is both of them, both the high priest and the high king in one, And it's this Jesus who is going to build up his church, no matter how weak it seems or how much suffering it it is enduring. But friends, uh, just look at the glorious way in which this Jesus is described in the rest of the passage. Uh, Let's pick it up from verse 14. Verse 14, "...the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow." His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun in full strength. Now, um, again, when you see this in Revelation, I think what we are meant to think of is something similar in the Old Testament. Can somebody tell me where they have seen that sort of image before? Anyone? Somebody called it out? Daniel, who was that? I just heard a voice with... Oh, Beth. Daniel, yes, thank you. Um, it, it's from Daniel. Daniel. Um, Just turn over with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Um, And uh, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision of uh, someone called the Ancient of Days. uh, And the Ancient of Days in the book of Daniel uh, is speaking about God himself. And in in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, uh, look at how um, the Ancient of Days is described Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Or, come with me to Daniel chapter 10. Uh, Daniel chapter 10. Daniel uh, also has another vision of the Ancient of Days. And have a look at verse 6. Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. His body was like beryl, and his face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. You see, John in Revelation is having the same vision that Daniel was having in the book of Daniel. He's having the same vision that Daniel had of the Ancient of Days. You know, the the hair white like white as snow, and uh, the, the feet like burnished bronze. But if you come back to Revelation 1, you can see that John is seeing not the Ancient of Days, but he's seeing the Son of Man. In other words, unlike in Daniel, he is not seeing God the Father, but he is seeing God the Son. Now, I don't think John is sort of somehow getting his Trinity mixed up here, and he doesn't know who, who he's seeing. But the astonishing thing that we are seeing here is that Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, shares the astonishing and mighty and glorious rule of God. Here is the resurrected Jesus in all his glory, in all his majesty, in all his splendor, and all his frightening power, having the power of God himself. I wonder whether you and I know Jesus like this. Friends, uh, there are two very important things I want you to see here. Firstly, notice where Jesus is in this picture. Notice where Jesus is. In verse 13, it says there that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. In other words, he's in the midst of his church. Now, that's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Because the vision that John has almost makes Jesus look otherworldly, doesn't it? He's so mighty, so powerful, so glorious, that he almost seems a little bit removed from us, transcendent from us. But the astonishing thing here is that he is also the one who is in the midst of his church. He's also the one he, who is here in the midst of church at nine. He walks with the church. He is present with the church. Uh, many of you would have received my email this week about Jordan, who is a high school student at our church. He had a pretty serious car accident Um and uh, he had some pretty horrible internal injuries that they had to operate on. Uh, when he first came out of surgery, um, I saw him speaking to his father on the phone because his father was interstate. The friends, how much better was it when his father actually arrived and sat next to him at his bedside to be present with him and to comfort him? You see, presence makes all the difference to those who are weak. How wonderfully comforting it is for weak churches and churches that are suffering persecution and tribulation to know that the glorious Christ, the resurrected Christ, who rules all things, is in their midst. Uh, Perhaps you are here this morning and you are going through a particular hardship at the moment for for identifying with Christ. Uh, Perhaps you are going through a difficult time in your Christian life. Uh, What a comfort it is to know that the one with all glory and majesty and power is in your midst and in our midst. But secondly, I want you to notice that the glorious that this glorious and majestic and powerful Jesus who is in the midst of his church is also the one who notices everything that is going on in his church. In verse 14, he is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. He is the one whose burning eyes see all that is happening in his church. He notices everything that goes on in his church for he cares deeply about the things that happen in his church. Uh, You might be a growth group leader, and uh, you've had a hard year in many ways, but you've been faithful in preparing the Bible studies each week and faithful in loving and caring for the members in your group. No one may have seen your work. No one may have said thank you to you. But I want you to know that Jesus sees that work. He notices. He cares deeply about what is going on in his church. Or you might be a member of our church and you've been working hard this year to show hospitality to strangers and those who are in need of encouragement in our church. Again, no one may have seen what you do. No one may have said thank you to you or shown you any recognition. But what God's word tells you is that he sees, he notices, nothing escapes the vision of Jesus and his attention. Or you may be someone who has tried very hard this year to tell people around you about Jesus. It's not something that you find easy. Uh, Progress is slow, but you are really trying to be obedient to Jesus in your life. Uh, You've sometimes been ridiculed. Uh, You've become that weird Christian person in your workplace. Uh, Again, no one may have seen that. Even your Christian friends may not have seen your progress. But I tell you, Jesus sees. He notices and nothing escapes his attention. But friends, although Jesus sees all things, all these sorts of things, as we will see in coming weeks, he also sees the complacency of some of us. He also sees the sexual immorality of some of us. He also sees the greed and the idolatry and the hoarding of riches of some of us. And these things no one else may know about. You may try to hide these things from everyone else, but make no mistake, friends, Jesus sees what is going on. And the one who sees is described as John who comes with a sword coming out of his mouth in judgment. And so, friends, I want to say that this Jesus is not one that you and I can take lightly. This is a Jesus who will demand change. This is a Jesus who will confront you and me for the way that we live our life. And so I hope that as we go through the book of Revelation, you and I will take this Jesus very, very seriously indeed. It's no wonder then that when John sees this vision of Jesus, he falls at his feet as though dead. You see, when a sinful person comes face to face with the blisteringly glorious And majestic and holy and powerful Jesus, there is dread. And the only right response of sinners is to fall at his feet, recognising his glory and majesty and power over them. Friends, what kind of a Jesus do you have in your heart and in your mind? Perhaps for some of us, our vision of Jesus is far less than what we see in the book of Revelation. Perhaps for some of us, our vision of Jesus is like, you know, one of those sentimental paintings of Jesus with, um, you know, a long white um, dress and long flowing hair, looking German usually, and holding a lamb as though he wouldn't hurt anyone. Is that the kind of Jesus that you believe in? the one who is just there to comfort you and to be soft with you and yet who never makes any de- demands for change or never <clears throat> confronts your sin and my sin? Well, if that's the Jesus that you and I worship, that then the Bible says that you and I have the wrong Jesus. For the Jesus that Revelation speaks of is the resurrected one, the one who is reigning with all glory and power and splendor and majesty, ready to judge sin and all those who oppose him. And so the only right response is to fall at his feet in worship, recognizing who he is and submitting your life to him. And yet the astonishing thing that you see there. Is that as John falls at Jesus' feet? Did you notice the wonderful words that he hears from Jesus in verse 17? Jesus says to him, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. You see, If you and I respond rightly to this Jesus, well, there is nothing to fear. For what can you fear that the Lord Jesus Christ has not already overcome? If you are being persecuted for your faith, do not fear. For Jesus is the first and the last. He is the one who controls all of human history from the beginning to the end. He is in control of your life from your birth. To the very end, when you take your last breath. If you are afraid of God's punishment for your sin and the things that you are ashamed of, well, Jesus is the one who died for your sins. So that if you trust in his finished work, his death on the cross for you, then there is now no punishment left for you. There is no reason to fear. If you are afraid, of where you will spend eternity, well, he is the one who in his resurrection has conquered death itself and has the keys that can free you from eternal death and punishment. And so, friends, brothers and sisters, fall at his feet. Worship him. Submit to him. No longer live your life for yourself, but for him who died for you and rose to glory. And if this Jesus in all his resurrection glory and majesty and splendor is the one who is with you and is the one who is with me, then make no mistake, there is nothing at all to fear. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. We thank you especially for our Lord Jesus. Thank you for the comfort of knowing that he is the one who is in our midst and that he cares deeply for us individually as well as uh, as a church. Especially when we are weak or suffering for the gospel, we thank you for his care of us. I thank you that he sees and notices all things that go on in his church, even though we may not see and notice these things. Father, forgive us for often having a Jesus in our hearts and in our minds who is less than the real Jesus of the scriptures. Forgive us for the times when our vision of Jesus has been small and We have not lived for him, but for other things in this world which have seemed bigger to us. Forgive us and help us to see him more and more clearly. May our vision be shaped by the one who says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Please help us to be the ones who fall at the feet of this Jesus. Drive away our fear of people and the things that make us insecure. But help us to know this Jesus in all his resurrected glory and power and majesty. And may he drive away all fear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.